Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. My co-host, Matt Robeson, is some terrific guy. He writes for the alternate and he is the author of a blog, a more perfect union forum.com, which you all should take a look at. He is now a frequent guest all over the podcasting universe and uh, happy to be on the air with him again. Today, it's just us folks. We've had a run of really great guests and now you're just stuck with Paul and Matt. But not too bad because Matt and Paul, uh, you know, the Matt and Paul show uh, filled with remembrances, perspectives, opinions, some of them even informed. So Matt, uh, welcome, 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 welcome to Off the Record with you and me. How you doing? Doing well. Um, or as I'm fond of saying these days, I'm COVID good, you know, all things considered. I'm I'm doing relatively well. I, you know, so I, I, I know we were planning to, um, to jump into some listener questions uh, today, and we, we had a bunch teed up. But before we even got to that, um, if it's not throwing you too much of a curveball, um, your former colleague, uh, Representative John Lewis, passed away last week, and you got to serve with him um, and work with him. Um, I, you know, I just, I just wanted to see if there was – Anything you um, that came to mind that, that you wanted to share with our listeners about what it was like knowing John Lewis? Uh, sure. Um, you know, it is, um, it's always interesting to meet an icon and forever and ever for those of us um, in the law, for those of us uh, interested in justice, uh, human and civil rights. Um, I knew John uh, from afar as an icon of the civil rights movement, of of the youngest speaker in 1963 at the famous March on Washington, as the leader of uh, the student uh, movement in the civil rights era. And um, I got to Congress and to be able to call John colleague, friend, mentor uh, was a remarkable experience. Um, I, you know, a couple, uh, in no particular order, a couple of things stand out to me. And, and I, I, I may or may not, you know, I don't think I'm making up my memories. I, they're, they're actual, they're actual memories that I have, but one of them is, is really a funny memory. It's um, uh, around the time we had, we had just gotten the freshman class, which had been elected in 2006, uh, uh, was going to its first Democratic caucus in Williamsburg, Virginia. And the part for the, for our listeners, the parties. Uh, get together at the beginning of the session with their with their members and have a day or two of meetings and planning and strategy and some fun 
just uh, you know, like 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 any organization, that's a bit of a retreat, and we were going to uh, to uh, to Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, at that retreat, um, it, there was a, a kind of special thing that happened, which was that that I had um, made it known to John Hall of the group Orleans. And you folks may remember John Hall was the guitarist and vocalist for Orleans. They're still out playing from time to time. Uh, I used to joke that John uh, made his living visiting his mailbox to pick up his royalty checks because as a musician and songwriter, he had written, you're still the one, but da 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 still the one, but da 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 and uh, so we had actually, after a little bit of hesitation on his part, because, you know, here, I, he doesn't know me from anywhere and I'm not a rock star. We actually had been playing a little bit together and uh, would go on to play, play music together. Um, but we ended up um, with some help from our staff, and you may have been involved with this, planning at this Williamsburg retreat to join the band that was going to entertain one night uh, with some other members of Congress, Joe Crowley, who was a singer, uh, some other, some other members who, uh, you know, I mean, you, you never know what you find in Congress, but there were actually members who could play music. So anyway, one of my memories was we took over the stage that night and, 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 and nobody uh, none of the none of the congressional delegation knew beforehand what was going to happen. This was a it was a total surprise. So I remember being up on the stage. Pego was with me. We were all singing. We were playing, and in front of us was was this entire congressional delegation. People you only saw in suits and ties, making speeches. And, you know, walking through the halls of Congress, and. And when we started playing, uh, I just remember Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Rahm Emanuel, a bunch of people standing right in front of the stage with their jaws open. It was like, it was like floodgates of joy had opened up to this delegation uh, who had just won back the majority uh, after years wandering in the wilderness. We hadn't had a Democratic majority in Congress since 1994. Uh, Seventy percent of the people had never served in a majority. Here we were, explosion of joy, and there was John Lewis. And when we were playing, man, he was just like he was moving. He was moving. He was grooving. It, it's just one of my indelible memories of of John and other members of the delegation just dancing with joy and abandonment. So that that's one of my memories. And the other. The other is just, I remember on, on more than one occasion, uh, we'd have these caucus, regular caucus meetings down in the bowels of, of the Capitol. Um, and, you know, they, they're, usually there was some breakfast or some lunch and that was, that, was, that was part of the attraction. People would come for a free meal. Um, it's just like it is in, in New Hampshire, you know, legislators are always attracted by a free meal. That is probably the most important thing in a legislator's mind is where can I get the next free meal? But anyway, at the caucus 
the caucuses were sometimes contentious, sometimes not. Uh, sometimes uh, the leadership would be giving us our marching orders. Sometimes there would be explanations and sometimes there would be essentially debates about policy or strategy or what to do. And, and what I can tell you is that on those occasions that John Lewis got up to speak, it was really different. It was really, really different because he had such universal respect. He spoke to such fundamental values, such a fundamental sense of what was right and what was the right thing to do in a given situation. And so powerful a speaker, not that he was the most eloquent, not that he was, he used the biggest words, but the force of his presence was, was always something that everybody respected. You saw it on the floor, you saw it in private. He was also a kind, funny, compassionate person. I mean, you, you know, I, there were times when I would just sit down next to him um, in the house, uh, waiting for a vote, or uh, there's actually a lot of time where you're sitting around. Uh, no surprise to our listeners, I'm sure, that believe it or not, there's a lot of time when members of Congress sit around and wait. You're waiting for a vote. You're waiting for this. You're waiting for that. At least in the pre-COVID days. I haven't served in the COVID days, and now you're probably waiting in your own room to be called to the floor. But, you know, back then it was, uh, you, you could go to the floor and there could be debates or not debates, but you'd wait. And so, I mean, sitting with John Lewis, it was, it was this wonderful thing because he was just a, a wonderful man. He was, he was funny, uh, he was deep, he was wise. And he, one of the things that just struck me was his kindness. He was, he was really kind. He was kind to, to me as a freshman member of Congress who had more questions than answers about how things worked and what to worry about. So it was, um, it was a sad day uh, when, he, when he died, a sad day for the nation. Um, he has meant so much, uh, and especially at this time with a, a focus and a proper focus on Black Lives Matter and all that it means for our society. Uh, thinking back to uh, the civil rights era and those who put their bodies and their lives on the line for the, the fundamental of American uh, democracy, the equality and equality of opportunity. At a time when the occupant of the White House uh, is a racist authoritarian, um, uh, John Lewis stood out as the conscience of Congress and uh, a, he set a high bar for living a life of conscious, um, conscious adherence to doing what is right. So, RIP. That is a, as good a place to, uh, 
to leave it as we could have. And uh, I, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't try to add anything on top. Um, well, from the, uh, <laughs> from the kind of sacred to the profane, um, I think we were going to do some listener questions today. Okay, um, let's go. We've had a few that yep. have stacked up, that mm. have uh, that are in my inbox, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, I've shared over with you. Mm-hmm. So um, let me tee, let me tee the first one up in your direction. Okay. Um, so first one we have here is in this next. So the Congress is working on uh, another round of COVID assistance and relief. Um, so the question is, what should congressional Democrats be making the absolute red lines that have to be in the bill? So, um, you know, Paul, you, you know how the sausage is made. There are a lot of things that are being discussed. Democrats um, kind of have the outlines of what they want to see in the bill. What in your mind is the most important stuff, the stuff that they absolutely uh, should not bend on? Uh, I think that um we've got to have an extension of the Paycheck Protection Program uh, because there are so many people in New Hampshire and around the country who are depending on that assistance. Um, Unemployment is still um, uh, just a huge problem. And frankly, as as we look at the possibility of another surge, uh, it could all fall apart again. So I think there needs to be in place an extension of the Paycheck Protection Program. It's essentially, uh, in a way, it's uh, it's uh, we're, sl- we're we're heading towards a universal basic income, um, uh, and and that's not a bad thing at this time. And uh, if properly constructed, it's not a bad thing. So that's number one. Number two. I think the focus has to be on helping Main Street and small businesses as opposed and, and putting some real controls on the money that can go to giant uh, businesses. Um, it, I think the controls about how, uh, how the money is distributed need to be much tighter because we've seen hanky-panky at the top. No surprise in terms of who the money goes to. Uh, I I would like to see a focus on uh, aid and assistance to medical providers um, and medical caregivers um, with uh, to make sure that there are funds available to the public health system, uh, whether public or or private hospitals, uh, uh, doctors, uh, nurses, etc., to make sure that uh, they are they are taken care of and given the means if they need to buy PPE uh, protective equipment because the federal government refuses to provide it or can't, that uh, there are adequate, um, adequate means and a real focus on, uh, health, on, on healthcare. And I would include in that uh, the, the, the concern we have over um, uh, over the, the, the ravages of the pandemic in nursing homes and elder care facilities. Um, and let, let's include those in uh, help for uh, the, healthcare, the healthcare system. And, 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 and I would add, because uh, as you know, I'm an arts guy, uh, I serve on the National Council on the Arts, which oversees the National Endowment. Um, and I believe that 
uh, although I won't flog it, but the arts and culture and entertainment sector of the U.S. economy is approximately 4.3% of GDP. Uh, for whatever that measure is worth, it's a bigger sector of the economy than uh, transportation and construction. Uh, the arts, culture, and entertainment sector of our economy, which is so important, not just internally, but externally in terms of our soft power, but internally in terms of tourism, economic development, uh, quality of life, uh, it's been devastated, both the for-profit and the not-for-profit uh, sectors. So I would like to see some serious bump up in uh, resources available for the arts uh, and entertainment sector uh, because it, it's, it's, it's vital. Um, it's, it's vital to, to, to help weather this storm. So I'll stop there. And in fact, I know we've got to take a break. We're going um, to take a in break. Fact, so, yeah. So I'll just say that I, I think that's a great list. And, and the only things I would add to it would be um, general, the, the $4 billion that uh, states say they need for mail-in voting support and support for the U.S. Postal Service, which is undergoing a human-caused fiscal crisis, a manufactured fiscal crisis, which is going to interfere with our ability to conduct an election, which is largely going to be by mail. To me, those are absolutely essential items. But I'll stop there because I know we've got to go to break. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. Matt and I are answering questions from listeners, and we'll take a short break, and we'll be back. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM. Streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening pleasure. Matt and I are, are, are going through questions in our inbox from listeners. It's great that our listeners are interested enough to ask us interesting questions. They kind of ask us big questions because they're such smart people. It's really good to have, good looking have listeners. Too. What? What'd you say? Good looking too. They're Our listeners looking. are smart They're and good looking. Smart and good looking. They're kind, compassionate, wise, and generous. So all those things are good. But so I have a question for you, Matt. Uh, apparently somebody uh, actually has been reading what you write. Uh, you wrote a very important article um, on uh, on our schools and uh, the bottom line was you said, don't reopen the schools this fall. Um, here in New Hampshire, the decisions have been left to uh, the individual school districts to make decisions with what I would call minimal guidance about what to do or not to do. And, you know, New Hampshire is a relatively um, covid a free uh, kind of state, or at least low COVID by by any standards. When you take a look at the maps of where the surge is, it's not in New Hampshire. So should the schools in New Hampshire simply not open the physical schools? Should it just be remote learning um, at, in, in the fall? And if so, why? 
So I, I think I'll focus here. Uh, you know, I, in the article, I evaluated the four main arguments that have been put forward in favor of physical reopening of the schools, one of them being that we need to support working parents so that we can reopen the economy, another being that it is safe to do so, uh, another being um, that it's the right set of priorities for us to focus on physical school, um, and that's in part because of the fourth argument that remote learning is well inferior to in-person schooling. Let me just focus here on the safety issue. So much of the safety argument is being made on the basis of international models of school reopening that um, it is argued uh, have been shown to be relatively effective and safe. And, you know, as I go through in the article, um, the evidence is actually a lot more scanty and mixed than uh, advocates for reopening would like to uh, maintain. Uh, the Brown economist Emily Oster has shown that we actually do not have comprehensive, reliable data from these international examples. Um, you know, so the, the examples of Germany and Sweden are very encouraging. Israel's a lot less encouraging. Um, about half of that country's new infections in the last week were contracted in schools. And we do seem to skate over the fact that you know, countries like Denmark and Finland have successfully reopened their schools, but others like China and Israel and South Korea have had to reopen and then close them down again. So I do think that it is a fair point that the relatively low infection rate in some states, um, largely New England states, including New Hampshire, um, is a positive sign for physical reopening, that it would be a, a more promising prospect to physically reopen schools in New Hampshire versus other places. But that's not the only factor that goes into the safety calculus. Um, there are lots of things that these other countries are doing, including testing, contact tracing, physical infrastructure and upgrades to allow distancing, um, and cultural factors of mask wearing. Um, and it's not clear that we're going to be able to do all of those things. Um, so it's not just the factor of the infection rate um, and I would say that one would be uh, fairly well supported by the evidence to also be somewhat skeptical of the school reopening. And, you know, I think the final point there is, you know, the New York Times surveyed 300 epidemiologists about whether they would be comfortable sending their kids back to schools this fall. And 70% of them said, yes, I would be comfortable. But that leaves still a third of epidemiologists saying, I would not be comfortable yet. So um, there is some evidence that it would be okay in a uh, low infection rate state, but there's an awful lot of evidence saying we should still be fairly cautious. So let me just add my, my two cents, which is that if a school district was to decide to have physical school or even partial physical school, there is an awful lot to consider here. First of all, does everybody wear masks all the time? Uh, how many kids can come back? Uh, what about the teachers? Well, there are a lot of teachers who are in the age range of um, uh, potential comorbidity that require special precautions for COVID-19, who are in fact under a, still under a lockdown order, um, which my understanding is the governor has extended for people 65 plus, like stay in, stay in your house, don't, don't go out. Uh, what about school buses? 
Um, they're going to be making three times as many trips because they have uh, a third of the passengers and they got to do it. How, how do they, how do you keep to a schedule when the school bus has to make three trips to get to, to, to get, to get the kids? How do you pay for the sanitizing? What kind of training has to go into to cleaning and sanitizing um, in between? How do you enforce precautions with kids who are kind of notorious for having snotty running noses, um, especially as we get into the fall and the winter when it's, you know, uh, cold and the temperature's changing and it's flu and these kids are snotty kids anyway. I mean, it's just the way kids are, you know, they're, they're breeding cesspools of germs. So what's a poor school board to do? Um, That's exactly right. I mean, I mean, this is why Mike Pence got to the point of saying this past week, we don't want the CDC guidelines to get in the way of reopening schools. Well, that was, um, you know, I think the, he said the quiet part out loud once again, that it's a recognition of exactly what you're saying, that it is actually very hard in practice to follow the guidelines, which are the assumption around which we're building the idea that we can safely reopen schools and actually do this practically. So, I, you know, I, I, I think that's, I think you're spot on with that. Um, all right, let me let me get to the next question. Uh, I think it's my turn to to lob one at you. Um, the oh, this stars. is a simple one. Yeah, yeah. So so this is a simple one. It's why is the Trump administration attacking Anthony Fauci? So I'm going to go ahead and apply a little interpretation here. I think that that question is inclusive of both the political dimension and the substantive dimension. You can choose which or both of those to to address, but why on earth is the Trump administration going after the most trusted source of scientific and health information in the country in the middle of a pandemic? Well, that's a rhetorical question, actually, uh, because when you say the most trusted scientific expert in the middle of a pandemic, you have hit all the hot buttons for the president of the United States. The president of the United States is a demented sociopathic narcissist. Let's not mince words. Anybody who disagrees with a demented sociopathic narcissist is the enemy, okay? The enemy, because Trump has to have enemies everywhere. And if you look at his history of denial, deflection, uh, minimization of what's happened with COVID, um, uh, it's hard to find or hard to see that Dr. Fauci has uh, been the kind of yes man that Donald Trump likes to have at his side. Um, Fauci was famously shown making a slight eyebrow raise at some of Trump's uh, crazy stuff during his COVID-19 crises. And then it's the very fact that Fauci has now become a star in the in the firmament of the United States to many people, uh, a, a scientist, imagine a scientist star that people elevate and trust and want to listen to and will believe that must just get under Trump's skin like nothing else can because if anybody else has the limelight or approval, then they're his enemy. So, so it's hard to, it's hard for a normal person, and, and I use the word normal to cover a vast range 
of mental and emotional um, uh, stability. But it's hard for any normal person to fully appreciate how twisted, how tortured, how demented and delusional uh, the mind of this president is. Um, he's brilliant, but he's twisted. And so in his twisted framework, anybody who's been, who gets popular is an enemy of his. Now that is, that is, that is the, I don't know whether that's the personal or political, uh, but it, it, I think it's the underlying reason. And then from a political standpoint, because Trump always plays to his base um, uh, and the whole, uh, I won't wear a mask, I don't care about science base that he uh, uh, is pandering to, um, it helps deflect by going after Fauci, it helps elevate the, the Trump approach, which is whatever, uh, there's really no pandemic, don't worry about it, it's all gone, it's a democratic hoax, and oh, by the way, I'm uh, sending out the troops to stop the protesters because the real problem in America is that the left is trashing our cities. And if we don't stop them, all of America will be in flames because of the violent Biden anarchists who are uh, taking apart the cities. COVID, forget about COVID. Ah, COVID. Who cares about COVID? COVID is, COVID is so yesterday. I mean, I said it would be over in the spring, so it's over. The only reason we're seeing numbers is because of more testing. I don't believe in the testing. The testing is good. We've been the best testers. I mean, I'm, I'm the best president with the best testing. We're number one in testing. We've tested everybody. That's why there's so much COVID. We stopped testing, there wouldn't be any more COVID. So stop worrying about COVID. Do I look like I'm worrying about COVID? I hardly ever wear a mask. My people get sick. I don't get sick. So there couldn't be any COVID. If there was COVID, I would have been sick. But Fauci, eh, Fauci, you know, what do I, what can I tell you? He's got an Italian name right there. That's a problem. He probably, he probably, I, you know, he, he, he and all those Italians, all those people who come from other places, they're the problem. But I'll tell you, if we stop testing, there won't be any more COVID. So I think that was a very comprehensive, I think you hit all the bases. The only part of that I don't agree with is where Donald Trump turned into Mel Brooks. But other than that, I think that was fun. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, you know, it's time for Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. And by the way, speaking of passing, we, we, as long as you brought it up, Carl Reiner passed away recently at the age of 98. Mel Brooks, I have it on good authority from friends in Hollywood with whom I'm still in touch, is devastated. And people have been taking turns round the clock uh, hanging out with, with Mel and visiting him in the evening so that they can watch Jeopardy together, which he and Carl Reiner did every single night for many years. And for those of us who grew up on the 2000 year old man, uh, it was a terrible blow to lose, lose Carl Reiner. But can you just imagine what the 2000 year old man would be saying, would be saying now? It's like, uh, 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 COVID? Who needs COVID? COVID, that sounds more like, that sounds more like a throat spray than a disease. It, uh, you know, from well, back then, we didn't have COVID. All we had was rocks. It was like, don't throw that rock at me. So I grew up on the 2000 year old man. And, you know, I've got to figure out a way to inject it into our political scene. But I'd, I'd really, I'd kind of like to see 
Dr. Fauci is the straight man to Donald Trump's 2,000-year-old man. I can only imagine. There you go. Okay, so we have a very little bit of time left before our next break. Um, uh, but I got a question for you, which we can start in on. Let's see, can we? Can we start in? Yeah, we can start in, but uh, we can't get too far. And, and that question is that the president, in an interview with Fox News' Chris Wallace, said this week, that he would not necessarily accept the results of the election. Can he actually fight the election results? And what happens if he refuses to pack up and leave? I mean, I have this picture of Melania with a suitcase. Donald, Donald, come on, Donald, we're leaving now. And he says, no, and no, I'm staying. Uh-uh, they can't make me leave. What happens? Well, um, uh, that is one possibility that it could play out exactly the way you uh, just laid out there. Um, you know, given the, the time before the next segment, I could I could give a little bit more after the break. Um, you know, in short, it is possible. It's surprisingly more possible. And I don't think there's been a time really since the infancy of American democracy and our system of constitutional government where you could have said, realistically that uh yes a, a a sitting president could essentially refuse to accept the results i can sketch out what that would look like um after the break real fast um but yeah there are some ways that donald trump could monkey with the results so on that scary note, ladies and gentlemen, it's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with the Matt Robeson crystal ball about Donald Trump. Will he pack up and go? Will he accept the results? Oh, my God. Oh, go away. back it's off the record with matt robeson and paul hose costo co-hosting on wkxlam and fm streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com podcast on google stitcher and itunes and deep into our listener question segment matt robeson was about to tell us what it looks like and how it works if the president of the united states the the current occupant of the White House doesn't want to go. What if he says, you can't make me, I'm staying. It's an illegitimate election. All those write-in votes were trucked up by bus from Mexico. Those weren't Americans. There is no legitimate vote. I'm not going. Go ahead, make me. What happens? Well, I you know, I think it would, so the first, the first condition that would probably have to occur for him to try this gambit uh, would be that the election would have to be reasonably close. It's not impossible to do if it's a landslide, but it becomes much harder because what it depends on 
is sort of the full faith, credit, and cooperation of leading Republicans, including Mitch McConnell. But let's say that in the Electoral College, we are reasonably close. The first thing, and I've, I've written about this scenario um, on a more perfect union forum.com, my blog, um, but let's say that it is reasonably close. Before COVID, I thought that the most likely attack that he would wage would be he would claim that there was lots of illegitimate voting, illegal immigrants, you know, people who don't look white, you know, scary people being buffed in the same kinds of stuff that he said in uh, 2016. But more likely now, what we would see is a lag where in-person voting breaks more for Trump, and especially because of the way he's been talking up the dangers of mail-in voting, which Republicans are reporting is actually depressing uh, interest in mail-in voting from Republican voters. Um, and if you see a time lag for counting the mail-in votes, it would initially look like Trump is up in the polls in several key swing states. And that would make it look much like Florida. It would really put the lens on the counting efforts. Um, and from there, I mean, just to keep this brief, there are, there are several ways that Republicans could maneuver from there. Um, only 32 of the states bind their electors that they send to the Electoral College to vote the way their state indicates. Um, some of them that are under full Republican control could even pass legislation before the Electoral College meets, which I believe is December 14th, um, and after the election to unbind their electors. Um, they could thereby um, make it so that Joe Biden does not have an outright majority, which kicks it over under the Constitution to this weird process in the House where each state delegation gets one vote and Republicans hold 26 states. Democrats hold 23 states, so Republicans would win, likely, in that scenario. And then finally, there's the Supreme Court, which, going back all the way to Bush v. Gore, um, has shown that it is not above intervening. Um, there's also all kinds of weird things that happen with the official certification of the count of the vote, which Mike Pence would have some control over. So, in short, uh, feel free to read my piece on this on my blog, but yes, there are ways, if the election is reasonably close, that Trump and the Republicans could try to undermine the result. So let me, in the interest of getting through some more questions, um, let me turn the next question um, back to you. So I have one here. Um, oh, you alluded to this before. You were talking about what's been going on in Portland, Oregon. The question is, can the Trump administration get away with what they're doing in Portland, Oregon, where they have uh, unidentified military-garbed federal, I don't know what, um, law enforcement, I'm air quoting here, um, officers, grabbing people willy-nilly off the streets. Can they get away with that? Well, it all depends on the coffee. So the weather in Portland is often gray and rainy. Uh, I've been out there not too long ago. And, and, and it all depends on the kind of coffee that the various sides are drinking. If um, the federal uh, unmarked uh, 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 military folks who uh, are reportedly border patrol people, a notoriously uh, Trump-leaning uh, aggressive force, um, apparently been given new uniforms where there are no markings on the uniforms, just numbers. They're all dressed up in complete 
um, complete military garb, uh, flak jackets, gas masks. And it depends whether they've been drinking the caffeinated stuff or the decaf stuff. Now, if the protesters and the moms who are trying to protect the protesters, they're actually cadres of moms linking arms between the troops and the protesters. If they're drinking the decaf, well, then it's no contest. We're in real trouble in our democracy. But if everybody is drinking from the same pot, if everybody is, uh, is, is on the good beans, um, the situation is more frightening for America than anybody wants to contemplate. Um, because the hallmark of fascist authoritarianism is exactly this. It is from the playbook of great fascist dictators of the past to call in your border people whose business it has been to keep people out to uh, run rampant over uh, protesters uh, within and suppress dissent. Um, what Trump is doing is purely political. It has nothing to do with safety and security. He is not wanted by the mayor of Portland. He's not wanted by the governor of Oregon. He's not wanted by anybody, but he and his Homeland Security Secretary don't care. What they are trying to do is create the kind of chaos uh, which they can put on the evening news or in ads and say, see folks, left-wing Biden anarchists are destroying your cities. Only I, Donald Trump, can bring law and order back to this country. Be afraid, be very afraid, uh, and only I am your savior. So that's, that's what's going on. This has nothing to do with safety and security of anything. It's all a political stunt. It is a continuation, in my judgment, of the unconstitutional conduct um, that we saw uh, at the White House in Lafayette, outside Lafayette Park, as Trump made his famous uh, church perp walk to uh, hold up the Bible for his political event. And he had the bar call out federal troops to push protesters aside with weapons and tear gas. So it's unconstitutional. Right now, um, the Oregon Attorney General is suing uh, the Trump administration and various agencies to try to get an opinion out of the federal court to make them go away. There are investigations going on in various House committees. And meanwhile, the president is saying, ah, thank you very much for your lawsuits. Thank you for your investigations. I'm going to call them out. I'm calling them out again. And we're going to Chicago. It's kind of like the Howard Dean uh, scream. We're going to Chicago. We're going to Baltimore. We're going to New York. Now, I want folks to imagine a federal invasion of New York, because I don't know about you, but I've been listening to Andrew Cuomo and watching Andrew Cuomo, and it's New York. I, I don't know how that's going to play. And one of the things I've been wondering is, what happens if the federal troops invade and the governor calls out the National Guard uh, and police to, stay, to protect the protesters. And what happens if we have a virtually armed confrontation between National Guard and police on one hand, protecting protesters at the behest of governors and mayors, and the federal rogue forces on the other? But at the very bottom of this, let's just say that unmarked 
federal troops, pulling people into unmarked federal vans, taking them away to secret federal detention centers, holding them without charges, and then releasing them after a while is, is a, I guess maybe it's a new low for the Trump administration. But if you're not afraid people, if you're not scared of an authoritarian regime with this, it could happen anywhere, people. He could pull federal troops onto Main Street in Concord, New Hampshire, and a uh, Black Lives Matter rally and, and do whatever he wants. And, and the country, uh, I don't, who knows if there's time for lawsuits and investigations in order to stop a true fascist, demented fascist uh, from trying to salvage his, politi his political career. That's what I think. So with that happy, with that happy thought, let me throw one over to you. Um, let's, let's just go to how worried should we be about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has reported a reoccurrence of cancer. Apparently, uh, she was in the hospital recently for treating an infection. And while when she came out, she said that she was being treated for cancer. She's having chemotherapy. She has won one tough justice. She has beaten cancer at least four times that we know of. Apparently, she says the treatments are working. But how worried are we? What about the prospect of an open Supreme Court seat this fall? Can she hold on? How do we know? Will she hold on? And, um, uh, and then what happens if we're all wrong and Donald Trump is the president? So um, we should be somewhat worried. Uh, obviously, I mean, I adore Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so I'm extremely worried for her. Um, you know, and then the broader prospect for um, American democracy. It, look, it is troubling, um, you know, among voters who indicated in 2016 that their number one issue was control of the Supreme Court. Um, there were 38 percent of Republicans who said that only 26 percent of Democrats. Um, this is an issue that uh, traditionally we've seen in polling is more motivating um, to Republican voters and the predictions that the Brett Kavanaugh nomination fight in 2018 um, would be um, motivating to Democrats. It didn't really seem like that was uh, the push. Now, it, it, it did help um, perhaps in the House wave, but in the Senate, where there was the actual vote on confirmation, we did not see a uh, commensurate Democratic wave. And so, um, this is an issue where if Republicans can um, can get a hold of um, this, it would be a great way for them to change the subject um, at a time where polling is really moving disastrously against the president um, and against congressional Republicans. I would just note, though, that I, I do think, you know, we had uh, Congressman Steve Cohen on uh, this show a couple of weeks ago, um, and he really outlined um, the complete uh, assault on the judiciary that's been undertaken during the Trump administration. I do think there's a little bit of a tendency to overfocus on the Supreme Court. And just to give a sense of scale, underneath the Supreme Court, there are 13 courts of appeals, and, and below them there are 94 district courts. Let's focus on the courts of appeals. 
Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor once said before she was a Supreme Court justice that it's those courts of appeals where the policy is made. And if you think about it, there's about 400,000 case filings that go into those district courts every year. And of those, the federal appeals courts, those 13 federal appeals courts that are right below the Supreme Court, they only see a small fraction of those. They get about 50,000 filings a year. The Supreme Court only gets a small fraction of those. They get about 7,000 filings. They only hear about 100 to 150 cases. So 85% of the action is happening at that appeals court level. And you know what you're seeing is of the 870 federal judges that actually make decisions, Donald Trump has appointed about a quarter of them. And in doing so, he shifted the balance of Republican appointed judges from holding 40% of the total number of seats to an outright majority of 54%. And he's flipped three of those 13 courts to having Republican appointed majorities, meaning that seven out of the 13 courts of appeals, again, another majority now do. So yes, I am worried for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm, I'm worried for her. I'm worried for um, what could happen politically if there were an opening. I am equally worried about the larger issue of what's happened to the judicial branch of government under Donald Trump, the direction of the courts of appeals, um, and what Democrats need to do to try to fix the judiciary if uh, they get a hold of the presidency uh, and the Senate again. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL. We have taken listener questions. We're going to be back after a short break to wrap up Don't Go Away. back. It's Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet. We've been off the record. We're also on Google Stitcher and iTunes. Listener questions, lots of opinions, a short visit from he who shall not be named, uh, remembrances of John Lewis, and real concern for the fate of our democracy. We are in a dangerous period, folks. It's a dangerous time because Donald Trump is getting desperate and desperate people do desperate things and he's doing some pretty desperately bad things to America. So if you haven't gotten your absentee ballot, get it now, please get it now. Go online to the Secretary of State of New Hampshire, order your absentee ballot, apply for it now uh, because uh, Democrats, we're gonna need to get out the vote. Uh, I'm being, partisan here, but Democrats, you're our hope for the future of our country. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM. Thanks to our sponsors on this radio station for keeping us going. Thanks to our listeners. We'll be back next week with an exciting guest here on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. See you next week.